So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open to the book of Acts, chapter 6. And by God's grace, we will begin in verse 8, and we will persevere through chapter 8, verse 3. And so it is a large passage of Scripture. Um, and, and so I want you to try to stick with me as we read through this. Um, a couple of things about this passage. First of all, it's, a, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an amazing biographical sketch of, of the life and the ministry and the, the teaching ministry and the death of this amazing deacon of the Jerusalem church named Stephen, this servant of God. And so we want to track through and see his life, what he was like, look at his teaching ministry, and then the, the consequences of his death. But it also is an incredibly pivotal passage in the book of Acts. Because it is as a result of what happens in the passage that we'll read through today, that God uses, uses as his means to get the gospel to advance beyond the walls and gates of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth as he promised, and is the means by which he brings the gospel to us. And so it's an incredibly pivotal passage as well. So let's read, put on your thinking caps as we begin in chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 8. We've got Stephen that we'll be introduced to, his capture, his trial, and then his sermon lasts the bulk of chapter 7. And then we see what happens as a result of his sermon and the aftermath of that leading into chapter 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have even heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and here's his sermon, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave no, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge that nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. 
And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, their brother, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was, was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons at all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt a king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to, into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it 
according to the pattern that, they, that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of God, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us from it. Father, we ask that you, through your spirit, would enable us to not just understand what this says and what this means, but Lord, apply it to our lives so that you might be glorified in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do, is not, I will tell you the good news. I'm not going to walk verse by verse through this, but I want to look at three things. I want to look at Stephen's life. I want us to listen to his sermon, and then I want us to watch the aftermath of his martyrdom And I want us to see how God used it all to bring glory to himself. So first, we look at Stephen's life. And what we see in Stephen's life is that he was a man who followed the example of Jesus. He looks a lot like Jesus in this passage. When we look at Stephen, we listen to him, we see what happened to him. We see someone who looks a lot like Jesus. And that's a good thing. After all, It would be Paul who would later write, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul tried to follow the example of following Christ, and he encouraged his readers to do the same. And so what do we see when we encounter Stephen here? And what do we know? What does that tell us about the kind of man that he was? 
We learned last week in the opening verses of chapter 6 that Stephen was one of the seven whom the church there in Jerusalem chose from among themselves when the apostles said, choose from among you seven men of, of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. And so we know, for starters, that at least in the estimation of the members of this church in Jerusalem, Stephen met those qualifications. He was a man of good reputation. He was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of wisdom. But now here in verse 8, we're told also that he was full of grace and power, doing many great wonders and signs among the people. So first we see that Stephen was like Jesus in his character, in the kind of person that he was. Because this certainly sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Full of grace and power, doing many signs and wonders among the people. This same Luke <clears throat> tells us in his, <clears throat> excuse me, his gospel account, chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Paul will later say of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, that it is in Jesus in whom is the full measure of all the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of wisdom. And of course we know that Jesus is full of grace and power, doing many signs and wonders. We've talked about the signs and wonders part already in our study of the book of Acts. I would love to be able to do signs and wonders, but apparently... That was primarily just for the first century. And we don't need those signs and wonders any longer. Why? Because we have the apostles' teaching recorded for us in the New Testament. And so we no longer need those signs and wonders. And so that part of this certainly is not prescriptive. But surely the rest of this that we find about Stephen's character and nature ought to be prescriptive for us. That we ought to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom full of grace and full of power. And this was true for Stephen, not because he tried real hard to look like Jesus in his life, as if he just put together an inventory of the qualities of Jesus's character and just tried real hard in his own effort to be like that. No. This was true of Stephen because we're told that the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ resided in him. We're told that he was full of the spirit. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 8, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul would put it this way to the Galatians. He said famously, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In other words, he says that Jesus lives in me by faith and my life is his. And now because of my union with Christ, because I'm united to Christ by faith in him and his resurrection and his crucifixion, 
Now I can begin to look like Jesus in my life. And so for this reason, we begin to see in Stephen that which we saw so prevalently in Christ himself. He's full of the spirit and of wisdom and grace and power. But secondly, we see that Stephen was also a lot like Jesus in his teaching. A couple of things that we note about Stephen's teaching here in this lengthy passage. First, he taught with unanswerable wisdom. And second, he used the Hebrew scriptures to point to Christ. And both of those demonstrate for us how he taught like Jesus. Because Jesus did the same. In verses 9 and 10, we're told that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so we're told that those Jews who were gathered in the synagogue there, that, that they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So Stephen was teaching them. We don't know exactly what he was teaching in the synagogue, but we do have an example of his teaching in chapter 7. And so it was probably very similar to that. And the Jews in that synagogue had a problem with his teaching. And their problem with his teaching was Jesus. Their problem was Jesus. Jesus was a stumbling block for the Jews, Paul would later say. And they didn't want to accept, and they couldn't accept, that that their Messiah, their promised king that was to come, the anointed one that was promised, Yahweh's son that was promised, could possibly be this carpenter from Nazareth. And so they sought to dispute with him, but were told that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was teaching. The word withstand means to resist, to argue with, to to oppose. They tried to withstand it. They wanted to withstand it, but they couldn't withstand it because he taught with such wisdom that they couldn't dispute the logic. Doesn't that remind us of Jesus' teaching in his earthly ministry? Luke records for us that famous story in Luke chapter 20 when the Sadducees, many of whom are here in this Sanhedrin that, that Stephen is giving his defense before, the Sadducees gathered together and said, hey, here's a scenario, Jesus. There's seven brothers. The first brother marries one woman. And then he dies having no children. And then the next brother marries the same woman. And then he dies without having any children. And then the next brother marries and so on and so on and so on. Seven brothers marry the same woman. And they all die one at a time having no children. And then they say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Which is amazing because the Sadducees don't even believe in resurrection. But Jesus' answer is so amazingly filled with supernatural wisdom and logic that Luke records that they no longer dared to ask him any more questions. Matthew tells us of a similar story in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees ask, whose son is the Christ? And Jesus incredibly uses Psalm 110 to talk about David and how he talks about the Christ, who is his king, also as his Lord and as his son. And, and, and so it's so, so filled with wisdom that, that Matthew says no one was able to answer him a word after that, nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Stephen taught like Jesus. He taught with wisdom that couldn't be answered. 
But know that this wisdom didn't come from Stephen naturally. He may have been a smart man. We don't know. But this wasn't natural wisdom. This was supernatural wisdom that came from the Spirit of God. This was spiritual wisdom that came from the Holy Spirit that Stephen was full of. So it was spiritual wisdom that the Spirit of God gave to Stephen as he studied and learned and applied and practiced and preached the Word of God. And somebody might say, well, of course he knew the Word of God. He was an apostle and he learned this stuff directly from Jesus. No, he wasn't. He wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. He was a deacon in that church, and, and the Scriptures give us no indication that he ever knew Jesus personally. What does that mean? That means that he was discipled in this baby New Jerusalem church. And he knew the Hebrew scriptures. And he knew the apostles' teaching. Why? Because that whole church, as we were told back in chapter 2, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this is why he could proclaim and teach the gospel with unanswerable wisdom. But Stephen's teaching is also like Jesus' teaching because he used the Hebrew scriptures to point to Christ. We're going to talk more about the content of Stephen's sermon in just a moment. And we're going to see how he used the Hebrew Scriptures to point to Christ. But for now, what I want us to take note of is that Jesus did the same thing. Jesus taught that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, pointed to him. Isn't this what he did on the road to Emmaus? After his crucifixion, after his resurrection, two guys were traveling from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. And they presumably were part of at least the the periphery of Jesus' followership. And, And they're talking and thinking about what had just happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus shows up to them, but he shows up to them in disguise that they don't know it's Jesus. And they're talking about the crucifixion, the very public crucifixion that had just taken place. Not knowing that, that it's the very Jesus that they're talking to. And they express how sad they are. And how they had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. And that some of the women among them had gone to the tomb that morning and found the tomb empty. And they don't know what to make of it. At that point in the story, Luke records Jesus as saying this. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then listen to this. Listen to what he says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus regularly used the Old Testament to point to himself as the fulfillment of it all, as the point of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Stephen rightly follows that very same example in his sermon, as we will see in just a moment. So Stephen is very much like Jesus in in both his character, in how he taught, but also in his suffering and death. The similarities in this story between Jesus' suffering and death And that of Stephen is remarkable and unmistakable. Like Jesus, Stephen endured an unjust trial. Like with Jesus, 
They had to bribe people to make up false charges against him. Like Jesus, he was tried before the religious leaders of the day. Like with Jesus, the high priest asked him, are these things that they say about you true? Like Jesus, he suffered violence at the hands of sinful men. Like Jesus, he committed his spirit unto God in the last moment. And like Jesus, his final prayer was, Lord, don't hold these sins against them. Stephen so loved Jesus that he became like him, not just in his life and in his person and in his teaching, but in his very suffering and death. He so wanted to be like Jesus that that extended even to the way that he was willing to suffer for Jesus. So when we see Stephen's life and the kind of person that he was, the way that he taught and proclaimed the gospel and the way he suffered and died, we're encouraged by by how he followed the example of Christ. And we're encouraged, or at least I am, to do the same. To pursue Christ-likeness by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. To be conformed to the image of Christ day by day, moment by moment, year after year, slowly, progressively looking more and more like Jesus. And as we said earlier, we're not conformed to the image of Christ by sheer effort on our part. But neither are we conformed to the image of Christ without any effort on our part. This happens by God's grace, through the ordinary means of grace. Friend, this is why we read our Bible. Not so that we're smarter about it, but so that we look more like Jesus. This is why we study the Word. This is why we memorize the Scriptures. This is why we spend time in prayer. This is why we gather with God's people under the teaching of God's Word. This is why we seek to live out what it says in biblical community. Because we want to look more like Jesus. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And by these ordinary means, God transforms us to look more and more like his son. May it be said of us that we look more like Jesus this year than we did last year. And may it be said of us this time next year that we look a whole lot more like Jesus then than we do now. Let me just challenge you to ask yourself and flesh this out in your base group. What is it in your life that you need to focus on first in order to be able to say that a year from now? That you look more like Jesus. When we look at Stephen, we see that Stephen looks a lot like Jesus. And God is glorified in that. May God be so glorified in us so that when he looks at us, he sees his son. So not only did this passage allow us to look at Stephen's life, but obviously it also allows us to listen to his teaching and his sermon. So now we hear Stephen's sermon and we're reminded that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. I mentioned this briefly when we talked earlier about how Stephen taught like Jesus, but now I want us to see this from the content. I want us to dive into the content of the sermon and see that. We should note that that Stephen preaches this sermon 
um, as a result of being asked to defend himself against the false charges of, of preaching against things like Moses and the temple and the law and all of that. The high priest stands up in verse 1 of chapter 7 and says, Are these things true? Have you done these things, Stephen? And incredibly, instead of saying, No, sir, no, I didn't, I didn't do that, and defending himself, he uses this as an opportunity to preach Christ. And he preaches Christ by going back to the Hebrew Scriptures, these stories in their Scriptures that they would have been intimately familiar with as teachers of the law themselves. And he talks about three things, the presence of God in the Old Testament, the promise of God in the Old Testament, and the plan of God in the Old Testament. And he uses those three themes woven throughout this sermon to point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of them all. So let's look at each of them from his sermon. First, the presence of God. All throughout Stephen's sermon, he's, he's talking about the presence of Almighty God among his people. And it stands to reason that this would be one of the themes of Stephen's sermon because this is one of the things that they falsely charged him about. They said in verse 13 they, that they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. He's talking about the temple there. This guy never ceases to talk about the, the temple in a bad way. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, referring to the destruction of the temple, at least in their eyes. You see, to the Jew, the temple there in Jerusalem was God's house. And it was a symbolic representation of the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God among his people. But it was always and only intended to be a representative presence. It was never intended to encapsulate and confine the nature and being of God. As if God could be confined and all of his presence and being could be confined to a building. But somewhere along the way, the Jews had done that. They had relegated the presence of God to a building to such a degree that their relationship with God had more to do with their relationship with the building than with Yahweh. So it's only right that Stephen would make this a significant theme in his sermon. So what does he do? He first, he goes back to Abraham, right? He preaches Abraham, and what does he say about him? He says, the God of glory appeared to him in Mesopotamia. In other words... The presence of God was with Abraham even before there was a notion of a temple. Then he moves on to Joseph and how his brothers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But we're told at the end of verse 9 that even then, as he sold into slavery, as he sold into Egypt, we're told, but God was with him. Then Stephen moves on in his sermon. He gets to the story of Moses and, and he divides Moses' life up into three 40-year periods of time. First, his birth and, and upbringing. Second, his wilderness wanderings out in Midian. And then fourthly, his call to lead the Jews out of Egypt. And Stephen addresses the presence of God in each of those 40-year periods of time. In the first 40-year period... Stephen describes Moses' birth in verse 20 by saying he was beautiful in God's sight. In other words, Moses was before the face of God. 
He, he lived his life, Coram Deo, before the face of God. And here, Moses, as a baby, was beautiful in God's sight, was in, in God's presence. In the second 40-year period, in that wilderness wandering in Midian, we're told that the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And the ground on which he was standing was holy ground. Why? Because the presence of God was there in the bush. And then in the 30-year, 40-period of third 40-year period of time, Stephen mentions that God was sent by Moses and that he met with Moses and received the oracles of God directly from Moses on Mount Sinai that he then gave as the commandments to the people. So he addresses the presence of God. Hear that in, in, in um, Abraham, in Joseph, in Moses. And then after Moses dies, we move on to Joshua and the other fathers. And of them, Stephen says in verse 44, our fathers had what? The tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. The tent of witness was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was something that God had instructed them to build and they would carry with them as they went throughout the wilderness. And it was to be a symbolic representation of the presence of God among his people. And then he talks about how with David and then with Solomon, the temporary tabernacle was replaced by a permanent temple. Look at verses 45, the end of verse 45 and following. So it was until the days of David. In other words, they, they kept... Bringing that tabernacle, the tent of witness, that temporary representation of the presence of God with his people. They kept bringing that around with them until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So that was the temple. So at that point, God's people had a permanent place for the presence of God. But again, it was never intended to, to confine God's presence, but rather to be a representation of the presence of God among his people. So Stephen goes on then in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and then he quotes from Isaiah 66, as God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? And then in the following verses, Stephen lowers the boom on him and says, in essence, in those closing verses, you were, you were too stiff-necked and stubborn to recognize that all of these stories in our scriptures about the presence of God with his people that you're all so familiar with they're all pointing to the day in which God would actually be with his people in the flesh. You were too stiff-necked and stubborn to see that all of the prophets that you love to quote were all pointing to this Jesus of Nazareth. But you were too uncircumcised in your hearts to see that God was finally here. That he was with us in a way in which he never had been before. But you missed him. You were so concerned about Solomon's temple that you missed the actual temple of God that was living and moving and breathing and teaching among us in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And church, for us today, the, the, the temple as a building, as a representation of the presence of God 
is no more. Now Paul talks about the church being the temple of God. Not the church as a building, but the church as the corporate gathering of God's people. That the church is now, by God's grace and for His glory, the representation of God's presence among His people. When we gather under the teaching of His Word, He is among us in a way in which He isn't anywhere else. And so Stephen uses the Old Testament to point to Jesus. And he does so by using the theme of the presence of God, but he also does so by using the theme of the promise of God in the Old Testament. Again, as he preaches about Abraham, he mentions the promise here in two places. First, in verse 6 of chapter 7, he says that God promised to give the land to Abraham as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, if you look closely at verse 6 there, you see it's a twofold promise. Number one, it's a promise of land, which I believe will be finally and ultimately fulfilled either in the millennial kingdom or the eschaton. But secondly, it's a promise of offspring. Because he says God gave this promise to him and to his offspring after him. And then he adds, though he had no child. So this is a promise of offspring. And what we know about the promise to Abraham and what certainly the Jews in this synagogue who were trying to uh, withstand his teaching also knew about the promise of Abraham is that Abraham wasn't just promised to be the father of a child or even the father of children. He was promised to be the father of families of children. That's why his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. And this was fulfilled in Christ. But secondly, we see the promise also referred to in his teaching about Abraham when he refers to the covenant of circumcision in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Circumcision was given to Abraham and to the Israelites after him as a symbol and as a sign of God's presence among his people and as a symbol and a sign of his covenant promise with them. And what was his covenant? That he would be their God and that they would be his people and that God would bring forth a son, a king from the loins of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, who would break the curse of sin and death, not just for those physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham who would come to Christ in repentance and faith. This was the promise of God. And, and Stephen referenced this in his sermon, both in that section about Abraham, but also later when he spoke about Moses. Look briefly at verse 17. He says, as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. In other words, the promise continued. It wasn't yet fully fulfilled. It wasn't completed. Though there were many children of Abraham by that time, as they were in Egypt, the children of Abraham had multiplied greatly. They had increased greatly, but the curse of sin and death was still upon them. And so... The covenant promises remained. We also see this reference to the promise of God in Stephen's sermon as he concludes that section about Moses. He says in verse 37, This is the Moses 
who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now that's code speak because back in chapter 3, after Peter healed the lame beggar who is lame from birth, and he's preaching the gospel to those gathered in Solomon's portico inside the temple walls, Peter quotes with this very same verse from Deuteronomy 18, the words of Moses, where he promised, that God says, I promise to give you a prophet like Moses. And just as Peter did, Stephen here holds up Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise, that he's the prophet that was promised to Moses. But as with Moses and the prophets who came after him, the Israelites rejected this prophet, Jesus, as well. See, God had made a promise as far back as Abraham. It actually went farther back than that, but that's as far as Stephen went in his sermon. And that promise was to send his son, the Messiah, the anointed one. Or as Stephen refers to him in verse 52, the righteous one whom they killed. Look at verse 52 again. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand, in other words, promised beforehand, the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. And Stephen uses the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, to prove this by pointing to Christ. He did this through the theme of the presence of God. He did it through the theme of the promise of God. And then thirdly, he did this through the theme of the plan of God. The plan of God, of course, is related to the promise of God because God's promise is to execute his plan. But this, with this third theme I, I want us to, that I want to draw out from Stephen's sermon here, I think it has more to do with how God's people responded to his plan all along the way. And what, what Stephen will show in his sermon is that all along the way, God's people doubted, rejected and turned away from his plan. And yet, God graciously carried out his plan nonetheless. Watch how Stephen does this. First, with Abraham, what does he tell about Abraham? He notes, strangely, that Abraham stopped in Haran. That's part of the story from Genesis. Abraham stopped in Haran and hung out with his family there for an extended period of time. Now, this is minor, but it was a rejection of God's plan. God didn't tell Abraham to leave the place of the Chaldeans and go to Haran. He said, I'm going to go take you to a place that I will show you. And so it took the death of his father there in Haran, Haran for him to leave and go on to Canaan. In other words, God's plan was graciously carried out in spite of God's people rejecting his plan. Then we move on to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, Joseph's brothers rejected Joseph as one of them, one of their own. But God had other plans for Joseph. Though they had rejected God's man in Joseph, God was gracious. And he redeemed Joseph from the pit. He redeemed Joseph from slavery. And he ended up making Joseph who was the rejected brother, the very means by which the rest of his brothers who had sold him into slavery would be rescued from the famine. What does that mean? 
That means God graciously carried out his plan in spite of God's people rejecting his plan. Then we go on to Moses. And Stephen talks about how God raised up Moses as a savior of the Israelites in Egypt. And yet the people rejected Moses multiple times. First, they rejected him in Egypt. Before this all started, when he sought to solve that quarrel among them, they rejected him. They turned away from him. They refused him. And yet God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then they rejected him in the wilderness when they made a golden calf and worshipped it instead of the God that Moses had told them about. And yet God continued to be with them and lead them through the wilderness, ultimately to the promised land. God graciously carried out his plan in spite of God's people rejecting his plan. We see that in Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then continuing on in Stephen's sermon, In verses 42 and 43, Stephen quotes from the prophet Amos. Our women are going through a study of the book of Amos. Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel before the exile. And Stephen quotes from Amos in verses 42 and 43, saying in essence that God's people had rejected both him and his plan. But we know how the story ends because The Israelites were here gathered in front of Stephen. Where? In the promised land. They didn't stay in exile. God brought them back out of exile. What does that mean to us? That means that God carried out his plan graciously in spite of God's people rejecting his plan. And that brings us to the climax of his sermon as he recounts how God's people now in general And in particular with the Sanhedrin gathered here in front of him. Have rejected God's plan in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 51 and 53 through 53 again. You stiff necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They had rejected God's plan. And yet, amazingly, it was their rejection of God's plan that God used as the very means by which sinners like us and them might be rescued. That's how he fulfilled his plan. It's through their rejection. As Peter had preached earlier before this very same council in chapter 5. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging them on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, God graciously carried out his plan in spite of God's people rejecting his plan. So Stephen's sermon here in chapter 7 really is a masterpiece of expository preaching. He uses the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, to point to Christ, to point to Jesus. He embraces, as does Jesus himself, by the way, a Christocentric view of the Old Testament. And by so doing, he points to Jesus 
as the epitome of God's presence, as the fulfillment of God's promise, and as God's gracious completion of his plan. So in this passage this morning, we look at Stephen's life and we are amazed at how he followed the example of Jesus and we're encouraged likewise to pursue Christ's likeness for God's glory. We listen to his sermon and we're reminded that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament and we are encouraged to embrace a Christocentric view of the Old Testament so that we can apply the gospel to our life and mission. And then finally, we now watch the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom And we're inspired to trust in God's sovereignty, no matter what opposition we face in advancing the gospel. Let's look again at the closing verses of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, almost a demonic persona about these guys. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I can only imagine what he saw. He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of God. Well, why was he standing? Was he standing in honor of Stephen? Like we stand at a football game or some kind of sporting event when the players on the field do something remarkable and noteworthy. Jesus is standing and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But what do the people do? They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They can't hear this. They, they rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, He fell asleep. That means he died. Chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Seems like a low point for the church. Up to this point, they had faced opposition and it had been growing all along. At first, they were just imprisoned. Then they were imprisoned and beaten. Now they're being killed. And as a result, the church is scattering. And as they scatter, they're being pursued. They're being persecuted by men like Saul. Seems like a low point for the church. But as we know, God is sovereign even over times like this. And he's using this persecution, this 
murder. And the scattering of his people as his means of accomplishing his mission. What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended to the Father? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you in just a moment, in just a little bit. And when he comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And up to this point in the narrative of Acts, that's where it stopped. It hasn't gone any further. It hasn't gone beyond the walls of Jerusalem yet. But that was God's plan from the very beginning. That was his plan for getting the gospel to the nations. And by the way, consequently, that was his means of getting the gospel to us. And so he includes the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of his bride in his sovereign plan to get the gospel out. And it does. Look at the very next verse. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And if you'll take a peek with me, fast forwarding to chapter 11, listen to verses 19 through 21. But those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. What is that? Well, at that time, that was the ends of the earth. Speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Brother, sister, I don't know what opposition you and I will face as we seek to be bold, courageous, faithful gospel witnesses in our lifetime. But whatever opposition we face, we know two things about it. Number one, God is sovereign over it. And number two, God will somehow use it to advance his gospel and accomplish his mission. And for this, we rejoice. May God be gracious to give us strength and courage and boldness to be faithful witnesses for him, no matter the opposition we face. And may God use our faithful perseverance in the face of that opposition to inspire others who come after us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word. We're thankful for this truth. And in response... Father, we just we humbly ask that you would help us. Lord, help us to, like Stephen, look more like your son Jesus. To use the gospel to fight against sin in our lives. To use the gospel to be sanctified and grow to look more like Christ. To use your church, to use your word to conform us to the image of your Son. Father, would you glorify yourself by making us individually and corporately look more like Jesus. And Father, as we turn to your word, help us to see that your Son, Jesus, is the point of the Old Testament. May we see that in his promises, in in his presence, and in your plan. May we see that 
they all point to Jesus and his work on the cross as their fulfillment. Father, like Stephen, we ask that you would help us to be bold witnesses for your son about his gospel. And Father, would you use any opposition that may come our way to glorify yourself and advance the gospel? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.